This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with John Friedlander, author of Recentering Seth, Teachings from a Multidimensional Entity on Living Gracefully and Skillfully in a World You Create But Do Not Control. The Seth books, channeled by the late Jane Roberts in the 1970s, galvanized a whole generation of spiritual explorers. The entity known as Seth turned familiar mystical concepts into a radically new framework and introduced a unique understanding of how we create our own reality with our conscious beliefs. After nearly five decades exploring Seth's ideas, John Friedlander has reframed the groundbreaking Seth teachings, recentering them in the awareness that all consciousness expands in all directions. He synthesizes Sethian teachings with an eclectic variety of concepts and influences, from aura reading, healing, and interpersonal engagement to Buddhism and reincarnation to conscious dying and non-dual awareness. He reveals how you create your own reality, but that no one controls reality, which is spontaneous and surprisingly creative. John Friedlander holds degrees from Duke University and Harvard Law School. He began a formal meditation practice in 1970 and was introduced to the Seth books in 1972. A member of Jane Roberts' original Seth classes in Elmira, New York in 1974, he also studied psychic meditation and aura readings with Louis Bostwick beginning in 1973. The co-author of three other books, The Practical Psychic, Psychic Development, and Psychic Psychology, John lives in Saline, Michigan. John Friedlander, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Well, uh, thank you very much. I'm eager to, for our conversation. Well, thank you so much uh, for saying that. Um, we have a, a uh, now, now it's our tradition with a first-time guest to ask a um, particular question. And that question is, so it starts off with the invitation for you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth. And um, looking back um, to tell us about any moments, any experiences that in looking back, you might say prefigured or anticipated the direction that your life would take, um, certainly with um, the production of the material in recentering Seth, um, but in general, your career um that we're going to discuss on this show today? Well, uh, I grew up in a very conventional, high-achieving family. And uh, I think that that in itself was uh, preparation for uh, valuing the everyday uh, and the and dealing with the tensions and contradictions of the personality uh, in a mystical per, uh, perspective. 
Hmm. Uh, so I think that was very important. Uh, addressing your question more in its terms, uh, I remember two early childhood uh, events that uh, prefigured my moving decisively out of uh, that uh, concrete focus. Uh, one, uh, when I was maybe four years old, uh, I decided that if I, if I concentrated for a long time, uh, on becoming Superman, if I go to a mystical, uh, a secret spot and concentrate for a long time on becoming Superman, that, that I would. And, um, so I did that for a long time in four-year-old terms, uh, one day. And then <clears throat> I, I, I figured I'd accomplish my objective. I went and I ran and I leapt into the air, uh, expecting to fly. And I still remember my shock when my stomach hit the ground <laughs> and it knocked the, <laughs> knocked the air out of me. Uh, I give that as an example of uh, the uh, in the first book that that I ever wrote, uh, because people have an idea about what it means to create your own reality. That as long as you quote unquote believe something, uh, then that's the reality mm-hmm. you create. But there are multiple levels of belief. Uh, and, uh, there are multiple levels of, of self-awareness. So, uh, uh, really now for almost 50 years, I've been pushing back on simplistic understandings of Seth. But, but I attribute that belief that I was going to be able to fly uh, to uh, yogi lifetime. So I, I think that prefigures it. The, the next such instance um, was uh, when I was seven years old, Life Magazine had an article on yoga. And uh, most of your listeners will have no idea how, how you how out of the ordinary yoga was and how few people even knew what it was uh, back in the mid-50s. So um, I read this article and I I read about uh, how hard it would be to concentrate on the rose for five minutes and I tried it and I wasn't able to do it. But I decided as soon as I got the chance, uh, I, I would, I would practice yoga. So those are, are two events that maybe prefigure. Well, that's, uh, thank you for, for all that. Um, I'm actually kind of interested in, in what you, uh, first spoke of, which is this, um, Valuing of the everyday experience <clears throat> based on the way 
your family dynamics or values or what or whatever however you might describe it um uh created a, a kind of foundation foundational place and then it sounds like this first um experience of trying to fly or assuming you could fly um must have must have uh must have been a shock in that context and um so i'm also i'm further imagining that that later in life perhaps similar not not quite as egregious examples might have might have occurred for you in other words where the everyday did not fit um or the training in the everyday the valuing of the everyday experience didn't quite fit what you wanted to do what you imagined you wanted to do etc is that is that a fair um guesstimate here I, i'm not i'm not sure i completely understand you uh the the deep programming i had uh i and i think that i set up intentionally uh, uh between lives and and with my guides um i would say as a result of that i never bought the idea of becoming enlightened um it, it particularly the hindu version of of that that was so uh operative uh, back in the early 70s when i when i i did uh join uh an indian meditation group and went to india twice and lived in an ashram uh uh but the idea of eternal bliss as being uh a worthy object uh never made that much sense to me hmm. uh i i i i always wanted to be able to chop wood and fetch water you know do everyday things uh i i didn't realize and, and maybe this addresses your your question um when i was young and and graduated from law school i thought that because i knew about seth and because i graduated from a a prestigious law school that life uh, uh would become a victory march uh, <laughs> okay <laughs> and, and uh it 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 took me not too long uh to learn that it wasn't going to be mm-hmm. and uh so i got married I had a, a baby uh went into a job market with completely unrealistic expectations uh expecting that i would make a new york city uh salary in a small town i i, I was going to get everything mm-hmm. 
And we mostly, my wife and I were mostly worried about what we were going to do with all our money. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, and when she left, when he was not quite a month old, I really hit the ground and crashed and burned. And it took me about two years, you know, I, I went through a series of setbacks, but I slowly made it out. I, I met my current wife back in 1977, so we're now uh, together for quite some time. Um, and year by year, it got better. Uh, and year by year, I understood more uh, something the Tibetan Buddhists understand quite well is uh, uh, pleasure and pain ebb and flow in your life. Uh, you are always encountering limitations uh, and you're always hitting uh, uh you're always hitting tensions and contradictions. The Tibetans call that, that, uh, that you're perpetually emptying concepts. Uh, what we do is somewhat different from emptying concepts, but it's, but it's also quite similar. So, uh, so I, I learned the hard way. Mm-hmm. If there was a mistake that could be made, I made it twice. At least, uh, and uh, life has gotten better and better. Uh, and life is still not a victory march. Uh, I, I, my wife came in this morning and told me that I had said something obnoxious to her. But uh, after uh, many years, uh, we we handle those things really easily, and they uh, uh, and and things are great. Got it. Well, uh, you, you perhaps won't be surprised to hear that uh, I told Stuart five minutes before this uh, broadcast that he had some, said something obnoxious to me. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, <laughs> so we we seem to be aligned this morning. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I, I really appreciate this, uh, line of conversation and we'll, we'll thread back to that, uh, just to kind of work up the, you know, the, your biographical notes. So you mentioned that you had, um, found out about the Seth material. I think one of the things that I found very interesting in your biography is that a lot of people encounter the Seth material I, you're one of the few people I've encountered who actually, you know, uh, worked with Jane Roberts and was actually there essentially at ground zero for uh, a lot of the, uh, the material coming forth. And <clears throat> also, uh, subsequently, I, uh, I think it was subsequently, you also, uh, had some involvement in the, uh, probably the foundational days of the Berkeley Psychic Institute with, uh, uh, Bostwick. And uh, so it's an interesting, 
you you seem to be at the uh, ground floor of a lot of uh, 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 let's say uh, influential influences that uh, yeah, I, I I consider myself phenomenally lucky uh, and uh, <clears throat> and speaking of tensions and contradictions uh, I, I did study with Lewis before. But then I studied his material considerably longer uh, in other ways. But uh, I did study with Lewis at the very beginning of the Berkeley Psychic Institute. And uh, I was blessed to study with Jane. And I think I was lucky to have both of them, each of whom disrespected the other and each of whom was incredibly charismatic. Uh, and that allowed me to to find my own synthesis of, of, of that material and, and, and to a lesser extent, other things. Hmm. So that's interesting that, that you describe uh, uh, Jane Roberts as incredibly charismatic because, I mean, I've read... I, I'll just, you know, uh, preface what I'm about to say by uh, noting that when I met my spiritual teacher in 1977, one of the very first sets of books that he suggested I read was the Seth, the various Seth books that had been published at that time, considered them very uh, uh, groundbreaking. But um, but I don't remember getting the impression reading those books of of a charismatic woman. I mean, a, a really unusual and interesting woman, but not a charismatic woman. Can you say just before we go on, can you say just a little I, bit more about that? I don't draw the extreme dichotomy between Seth and Jane. Okay. Uh, and uh, because uh, people misunderstand what, channeling a large being like that is about. Uh, uh, so the Tibetans, again, I think, are, are way ahead there. They talk about emanations, not incarnations. The mm-hmm. Dalai Lama is an emanation <clears throat> of compassion. Uh, Seth, the being that's channeled, is both an emanation of something outside of time and, and space is, uh, uh, and, and very big. Uh, and it is a creative act of that very big being and Jane Roberts. Mm-hmm. So the charisma of Seth, again, most of you listeners probably are not old enough to Remember Marshall McLuhan and the medium is the message, but it certainly applied to Jane, the old fashioned term for channeling. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually a different kind of channeling, but is medium. And a major part of, of Seth's message was his presentation through, through Jane. Hmm. Uh, and that presentation was as charismatic as anything I have ever seen. Hmm. Uh, I I went to Harvard Law School. So 
I've seen some really smart people, but I have never seen anyone as smart as that instantiation, uh, that presentation uh, of Seth. Uh, just absolutely brilliant and warm and funny. Uh, and I remember uh, in the book, The Seth Material, they take some pictures of Jane. Uh, and one of the pictures always looked wrong to me. And uh, I didn't get, I, I don't remember when I finally figured out what it was, is that picture was Jane, a very feminine uh, person. Uh, and I associated this male, charismatic, authoritative, funny uh, personality. So, so the hmm. so Jane appearing as herself seemed jarring, but uh, Jane was was warm and kind. Uh, she was committed to her ideas, as was Lewis. Uh, uh, but I think something unique about each of them that uh, I really treasure, maybe above uh, as much as anything else, maybe not above, but as much as anything else, is they never claimed infallibility about anything. They never claimed to have the last word about anything. Now, they were, they were committed to their ideas. And if you came in with a different idea, they would challenge that. But, uh, I like to say, and I, uh, and I think they would have agreed, uh, with my students, you know, I say, I know I'm telling you some wrong things. I just don't know which of the things I'm telling you are wrong. Fair enough. <laughs> so, so there's another uh, thread in your background that uh, also resonated with me and in, in, that came through in the Recentering Seth uh, book. And that's the uh, uh, exposure to Buddhism. Could you talk a little bit about what your... Uh, Exposure or how, how, how the Buddhist philosophy integrates into your, uh, uh, kind of composite understanding. Well, um, Seth in one of the early books said that in his opinion, Buddhism was the, the closest religion to, to having, to, to having, uh, uh, a clear vision. Of, of life. Um, so, uh, I guess, uh, when I moved to Ann Arbor is where I got more deeply into, into Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, I was lucky enough to, uh, meet Gaelic Rinpoche, uh, a reincarnate, uh, Tibetan Lama. He was, uh, Allen Ginsberg's choice and Allen Ginsberg could have, you know, chosen any of the 
uh, tokus. Uh, uh, and uh, it was really quite wonderful. Of course, not perfect. Uh, no one is. But he was very wonderful. And uh, his uh, organization, Jewel Hart, he died oh, probably seven or eight years ago, I guess. Uh, uh, his organization is still here. So I, I studied uh, uh, at that institute, and I did some of the practices, and I read a lot. And I read a lot of Ken Wilber. Uh, and uh, so I have a, a modest uh, understanding of, of Buddhism. Uh, and uh, the, the various, uh, and I have appreciation for, for other schools of Buddhism other than the Tibetan Buddhist. But it seems to me that technically the Tibetan Buddhists are, are, are the ones who uh, are most highly developed technically. And uh, a lot of the things that Seth says, the Tibetans already knew and, and practiced. And what's really radical about Seth is not that he's the first person to notice that there were probabilities or that he was the first person to notice that time is simultaneous, or that you interact uh, in multiple time frames. He was the first person, I think, and not a person, but he was the first entity, I think, uh, to make a radical break with the Piscean Age and to center everyday life in a way uh, as, as the center of, of your journey. And that's why I called that book Recentering Seth. Uh, because Seth has all too often been interpreted as, uh, do these things and you can get everything you want and that will make you happy. Now, Seth never said that. But, uh, and, and I don't think Jane or Robert, uh, but her husband thought that. But it sure is how a lot of people, uh, practice it. What Seth did, I think, is, is he recentered the entire mystical journey. And that's why I really think he, he set up the next 2,000 years, uh, uh, recentered the uh, entire mystical journey in uh, an individuality that is ultimately firmly grounded in non-dual awareness. But, uh, but, but that individuality and uniqueness is absolutely central to Seth and 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 my philosophy. Well, th- thank you for that. That's um, and before we go on, I, uh, because because you've been talking here explicitly about Buddhism, I, I wanted to <clears throat> throw something out there um, for you to uh, comment on, and and that's that uh, we have a 
you know, one of my oldest friends uh, started out in the 70s as a Korean Chogye Zen uh, monk uh, working with uh, a, uh, a Korean Zen teacher named uh, Sung San. And, and he makes the point, he has made the point in several of his, uh, I think they're in several of his books, but certainly in person to me that, um, that uh, Buddhism has a relatively weak cosmological foundation or attachment. In other words, some religious uh, traditions um, are inescapably about a cosmological view, the way the universe works. That Buddhism is... And and of course, you have to look at all the different traditions within Buddhism to make some uh, uh, dis- to discern s- certain different flavors about this. But that um, uh, uh, but that Buddhism has this began at least presumably with this feature. And um, not that if you read some of the uh, um, uh, Pali texts and uh, early early material uh, that there isn't a sort of basic uh, assumption of the generalized pre-Hindu context of India when when the Buddha lived. Um, but, um, but one of the things that's interesting to me about the Seth material and, uh, and about your explication um, of it in recentering Seth is a relatively... Um, stronger cosmological view um, that that um, the Seth material has this feature that you were you were just describing um, um, in in the terms where both in what you just said and, and in the book that this cosmological view is going to be very influential as you say for the next uh, couple thousand years. So I'm I'm wondering if you have any I'm I'm curious if you have any comments about this idea of a cosmological commitment in different understandings of of different traditions of the Seth material etc. Yeah, uh, m- let me try to 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 address that. Uh, I don't remember that Seth ever said it exactly this way, but maybe he did, and I just picked it up. But to me, the the essential nugget of Seth is that all consciousness expands in all directions. Uh, and that it is impossible to do anything that doesn't add to your meaning and the meaning of the universe. Uh, and uh, later, if if we have time, I'll, I'll go into, uh, again, what is probably an elaboration of, of what Seth said about, uh, uh, well, maybe I'll do it now. Because all consciousness expands in all directions, uh, Buddhism is right that there is no thing of consciousness. There is no fixed 
uh, consciousness. But because consciousness is a process, and that process go, uh, goes on in a way that we can't understand, both inside and outside of time. So uh, it's kind of eternal square that uh, even if the universe disappears, even if everything disappears, as some of the Indian cosmology, uh, even, even so, your individuality continues. Um, I think that really refashions uh, everything. Um, uh, and, and, and it puts you right back into the center of your being. Uh, but, but it adds something to the most moment by moment forms of Zen, like, I mean, uh, of Buddhism, like Zen. Um, with, with that focus on moment by moment, it seems to me, and, 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 I haven't known enough uh, such Buddha, uh, Zen practitioners to really know. Um, and I do know one Zen practitioner from, from law school who would be a counterexample of what I'm about to say. Uh, it, it seems to me that you lose the fascination of of exploring things through time uh, that you get so focused in on the moment uh, that um, that you lose all these contrasts these uh, resonances uh, between times uh so for example in our work we do not define current time as the utter fixation on on your biological moment uh we define current time as not being stuck and uh so I can be in current time remembering a, a girlfriend I had uh, in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can also be stuck remembering a girlfriend I had in high school. Those are, are two different uh, those are two different things. But I think uh, that difference in current time, uh, I think is is an important difference. It seems to me that having little cosmological uh, structure uh, really is there to put you into current time in in that more eastern sense of current time. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so when the <laughs> Buddha was asked about, you know, other lives and things like that, he, he, you know, he said, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in this. Uh, but, but that is part of this. You can shut it out and just focus on this moment and achieve great power and clarity. Mm-hmm. But to shut out past lives when, uh, which are very easy to develop the ability to, to have them in. So your, your real experience has past lives of yours uh, coming in and out of you like uh, an autumn breeze or a spring breeze. Uh, and there's a difference between an autumn breeze and a spring breeze. And, and I think that as we move into the Aquarian age, one of the things that's going to happen is that's going to become a natural part of human individuality is, is this interwovenness. So in Buddhism, the fact that everything is interdependent is used as a leverage to keep you from thinking that you can control reality and uh, placing you in a stance uh, of seeking uh, a non-dual awareness. Uh, but in Seth, and as we move into the Aquarian age, I submit that this interwovenness is, is a important part of the dance. Not a should, not a have to, not an ought, but a pleasure and a joy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just the pure joy of, of, of being alive. Does that address your question? It, cer- it certainly does. And it's, it's uh, also interesting in its own right. So uh, we'll let it stand. And Stuart is indicating he well, wants to pick up the mm-hmm. thread here. So, right. And I want to. <clears throat> We're weaving the thread here in a couple different ways, but this statement you made about the radical nature of uh, Seth's teaching, which is really centering the spiritual project on the meaning, the meaningfulness of life, is is an interesting, very interesting one because it is certainly the case that. Many spiritual traditions seem to turn their batteries of technology on getting out of this life or transcending this life. And uh, the human existence is uh, kind of figured as a, uh, a, a state of uh, identification and attachment that uh, we must free ourselves from. That said, you brought up Zen and you know, there is, a, you know, there is the adage of doing a bunch of work such that one can chop wood and carry water, <laughs> chop water and carry wood. I can't remember. Which. <laughs> but uh, 
Uh, and wow, that would be hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's choppy sea. <laughs> that would be a nice koan. Yeah, it would be. So it would. So I am. Yeah, I, 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 I want to talk more about that because um, it's a very interesting thing to like be putting the the center of attention then is on the details of your life, the uh, uh, even the minutia of life. Uh, but not the meaning. The details are what draw you in to engaging it okay. with attention and, and even passion. But the meaning is independent of the play of pleasure and pain. So how do you access, in, in this uh, way of working, how do you access the meaning? The, the, you, it, the meaning is not a, an intellectual derivative. The meaning is. Uh, and the meaning becomes part of who you are permanently. And each and every uh, thing you do, whether it's the worst thing you ever did or the best thing you ever did, uh, has meaning and it, it continues to learn and grow and, and is it, and bad things are eventually re- rehabilitated. Uh, and, and, and bad people are eventually rehabilitated. If you take someone like Hitler, it might be 20 million years and a bunch of really nasty planets and stuff. But there is nothing that the universe throws away. So uh, there's a notion that comes up in a, a tradition that we've worked with in the fourth way tradition or the Gurdjieff work of uh, the horizontal dimension versus the uh, vertical dimension. And the horizontal dimension is typically that realm of details, like the minutia of life that draws, draws our attention in. But the horizontal is in a sense, the dimension of meaning. And to use an analogy, the horizontal uh, is the dimension. Sorry. The vertical is the dimension of meaning. I misspoke. The vertical is the dimension of meaning. So to use an analogy mm-hmm. of how, how, how I, I try to understand that is, um, if you have a sheet of music and you play an instrument, you can play you can play that sheet of music, and it's the same notes on the page. So the details are the same, but the meaning can be vastly different depending on the uh, quality of attention that the performer brings and, and all sorts of other factors they bring to that performance. And so, in a similar sense, we have this: we're, we're located in a life, and that life can be you know have ordinary details. Uh, successes, failures, you know, loves and losses and things like that. But there's something in the vertical dimension that's available that is uh, different from the details and makes all the difference. And it, it, it doesn't make all the difference. It makes most of the difference. I, I love that picture uh, you're, you're, you're talking about. And uh, so uh, I was talking more about a boundary condition, which is even if you fail to, to 
to perform and act in such a way that the real beauty of it shows. Even if you really screw up, you can't screw up so much that no meaning is created. But of course, uh, going to the uh, meaning, uh, you know, uh, uh, YouTube is just so fantastic. And I go listen to, to various uh, pianists playing the same thing. And many of them, in very different ways, bring out incredible meaning from the same piece. And uh, you also begin to realize there, there's some people who, who don't bring out much meaning. And I, I think that's what you you were talking about. Yeah. So, so the sense of meaning is, seems like a message of hope that, that um, whatever happens, um, there's ultimately meaning in that. Yes. Um, I guess there's, I, there's a tension I see in that um, between what what are the efforts that we make in spiritual practice? Um, what is the relaxation or the release that comes from knowing that uh, whatever I do, it, uh, it's it's okay? And in the fourth way, there's this term called self-calming, which is using ideational structures to justify not doing anything. So is there a, is there a kind well, of it, a... Oh, it, it, would be, it would be incoherent to do, to, to quote-unquote do nothing. I mean, of course, even doing nothing is something. And even that would be meaningful. But uh, it would be incoherent <laughs> and, and self-defeating uh, what 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 a avoiding or your shoulds have tos and oughts uh so that you don't engage in spiritual practice and 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 focus on ways of bringing out the richness of the meaning that is possible in in every act uh, of course you do that but you don't do that because it's awful uh, if if you neglect to do that or that a life is wasted or that you go backward 10 lifetimes. You do that because why wouldn't you do that? But it's also, there's something elitist and and putting down of most people on the planet's life lives in uh, a lot of the spiritual ideologies where uh, if you're not advancing in this incarnation, you're going to fall back and become a chihuahua or something. <laughs> uh, uh, you cannot become less. And I think that's a utterly vicious uh, idea that if you don't make the right choice, you're going to get a really nasty incarnation and you might not get back on the spiritual journey <clears throat> for 20 lifetimes. Now, you might get a, a nasty incarnation, but that's still 
you're still learning and growing and you're not going to fall back 20 lifetimes. You're going to the next incarnation. It just may be that the next incarnation requires you to develop compassion or something like that. So the there's a notion in the Seth material that I find pretty radical relative to the common understanding of reincarnation. And that's that most most ways people talk about reincarnation is sequential in time. So I have this life, I die, I have another life afterwards. It's probably, it's sometime in the future and and so on and so on. The wheel goes and I have past lives that, uh, you know, are in interesting past times. Seth describes a system that is uh, where the being that is incarnating is outside of time in the linear sense uh, and that it's better to think of the, uh, to use the term you used of emanation, it's like the lives are like these uh, uh, emanations simultaneous in that in that absolute sense, such that there is a beingness that's partaking of all of these lives simultaneously, and that we're not, it's not a sequential thing exactly. We're, we're more of a emanation from a being and we can be, as you said, influenced by these other lives because there's crosstalk and information flow, but it's not this linear progression. Could you, am I characterizing that uh, more or less as the same material does? Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, a reasonable uh, interpretation of what's in the Seth books uh and jane wrote uh three uh uh fiction books called the oversoul seven books and they're all published in one book now and they do very interesting exploration of that uh simultaneous incarnation uh i think my own explanation is implicit and maybe even explicit in, in some ways in the Seth material. But but what I've observed um, and 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 again the Tibetans knew this uh, and and some other mystics knew this too. Lewis knew this uh, that uh, when you die, okay, Stuart dies, uh, he sort of, you know, shakes himself off like a dog getting out of, out, out of a pond. And he sort of says, okay, where am I? Uh, and what ways am I feeling incomplete in that last lifetime? Well, I really need to experience being a little girl from, say, age four to 18. Uh, and I also need to experience being an old man from 64 to 94. And what I do in those lifetimes isn't as important as, as that. But I also really, really want to be a hotshot athlete. Uh, doesn't matter what sex, 
but I want to be, you know, a really good athlete. And I need those three experiences really to round off uh, who I understand myself as Stuart. So what you do then is, is that you get together with other incarnations of yourself. And together you seed a little girl uh, who, who is herself. Uh, we, we, in, 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 the, in BPI, you call those baby beings. Uh, and, and she gets to choose this also. She gets to choose, does she want to be born? in this particular way, uh, even before she, she quote-unquote, exists. This is, simu- this is what simultaneous time ties knots in, in your brain. Um, so, so Stuart wants to be a part of her, of her from age 4 to 18. So you go into what to me looks sort of like a suspended animation chamber uh, as if you were going on a space voyage. I, I don't mean literally, it just ha- has that sort of sense. You go in and you become part of her subconscious. You don't experience it in linear time, but you experience it intimately and you have your responses and she picks up on your responses and does and makes her own choices uh and uh when she hits 18 you're done you move on to the next thing and after you've done enough of those to sort of discover who you are then you uh hit the hindu atman in a more modern uh fashion the in buddhism you know is so strong on on no self no atman uh again that's to stop you from grasping onto something as fixed and uh permanent uh but the hindu atman is a real thing uh it uh it's a kind of centralized identity that is non-dual uh, and yet individuated. Uh, and uh, so after a certain amount of time, you're complete enough in yourself to be that. And when you're that, then you, then you go on a, on a whole bouquet, uh, a whole bursting out of creativity in multiple directions. Um, so, um, and, and everybody eventually gets there. Uh, so, uh, the time, time doesn't exactly run like this, but when I look at Beethoven, who, you know, who, who was both su- sublime and a cruel, uh, uh, jerk. Uh, he, he's not there yet. Uh, I know someone who had, uh, uh, 
what's the proper name for Lou Gehrig's disease? Uh, I forget. ALS? ALS. And and he died of it. And he pretty much went directly to to this. uh, he, He really was complete and he pretty much went you know within a, a a metaphorical month or two because time is different in those areas uh he 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 found uh the the Ottoman and and he became an Ottoman so yeah just so I'm clear on because when you described the reincarnational selves and the collective of different selves that are connected together. My understanding from your material is that connection happens at what would be conventionally called the soul level. So there's a, I guess I'm trying to thread the needle between an individual personified being in this uh, physical framework, like, like Stuart um, who's part of a aggregation of reincarnational selves that is at the soul level. Then... That's part of it. That's not all of who you are, but that's part of who you are. But then it's there's but, but 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 then there's the Atman uh, level. Now is that Atman level itself a kind of aggregation such that there's multiple souls that are in a sense aggregated? There? Sure. There's nothing. There's nothing. That 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 there are no separate atoms of existence. Every, everything is interwoven and interdependent. I want to circle back to something though that I was saying about Lewis and about uh, the Tibetan. When they find one of those selves that are part of your unconscious, they will eject them. The Tibetans will. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And Lewis used to do that. Okay. We, we meaning uh, Gloria, my co-author and I, and, and I, and I'm quite confident Seth, and, and there was another similar being that, that I interacted with 50 years ago. Um, who, uh, rather than eject those subconscious aspects, which does give you a greater control, but it impoverishes the richness of the interaction. Uh, so rather than eject those subconscious, uh, capsules, shall we say, uh, we work with them and, uh, help them, as I'm working through my dharma, I want to help what I call my co-personalities work through their dharma. That's interesting. How how does how um, in that interrelationship that you're just describing with within a, a subconscious or unconscious capsule related related being. Um, um, how does that how does that interaction work in the way that you're describing where you're where you're it sounds like you're taking some intentional um or inviting an, a, a co-created intentional 
um, work together. How does that yeah. work? Can you describe how that works? Uh, well, usually outside of, of, of consciousness. Okay. Uh, but um, uh, there, I, I remember for a while I had this Tibetan Lama who was a co-personality of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember... Uh, It's 20 years now. I, I don't remember uh, fully what our interaction was, but I remember having, you know, kind of a friendly discussion. You know, why do you Tibetans do it this way? Well, you know, uh, we didn't live in 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 the 2000s uh, where where you could have that rich an individuality uh, involved in this and involved in that. Mm. And, and and I found that quite compelling. Uh, but, but he's moved on to wherever he's moved on. But I didn't eject him. I mm. collaborated with him. So, so, um, so that conversation perhaps was what you understand he he or that being needed and 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 he enriched if i had simply ejected him i would have lost a very great kind of compassion that that he shared with me thank you so um this is very interesting and um and I'm wondering, uh, because earlier in this conversation and in your book, Recentering Seth, <clears throat> you mentioned working with guides. What are guides, relative to the discussion we've just had, <clears throat> what are guides? Who are guides? What do you do with them, et cetera? Uh, well, um, guides are collaborators okay. uh, they are they are reasonably separate beings in a world where everything is interdependent mm-hmm. um, uh, my guides are part of what I understand to be the Seth project that's been going on for at least 2,000 years hmm. okay um where I place them mythically, shall we say, uh, is in is in well, I, I place them in the Sethian framework of them being uh, really all emanations of of a of a very large being, okay. um, and but. But I have three or four or five that are particularly uh, uh, that that I channel and that I talk to and that I work with, and and they're 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 distinct. Even though I imagine I understand them to be in uh, part of a project, and that's more than teamwork. That's a that 
that's a kind of identity, um, uh, uh, kind of emanations from the same identity. Now, where I place them it, it w- might really vex a lot of people. Uh, in uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Autobiography of a Yogi. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But, uh, Back when I was coming online, everyone read Autobiography Yogi. It's a fun book to read. I think it has a lot of insight. It was written by a, a male Hindu, uh, born in 1893. So it has, uh, it, it is of its time and it, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. For example, uh, he talks about two beings, both of whom I interact with. Babaji uh, is sort of the master guru there. And um, Madhiji, uh, his so-called, his, his so-called sister, which is really kind of silly, uh, I think. It's just a, a similar emanation. But being a, a male Indian... Uh, uh, born in 1893, the best he could say about Madhiji is she was almost as enlightened as her brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so it it has to be taken with a, uh, you know, it, it, everything has to be adjusted. Uh, nothing is 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 perfect and, and unchanging. But I place uh, my guides as very Sethian versions of the characters uh, in that book. Uh, so there's Babaji, there's Yukteswar, who, by the way, I place as the closest thing to Jane Roberts' Seth. Uh, the act, uh, the the sort of more permanent version of of the man who who lived in India uh, uh, and was Yogananda's guru. Uh, the the sort of bigger version of Yukteswar okay. is, is 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 an alter a very alternate version. Of, of Seth. Mm. And of course, Seth couldn't be more different than, than a guru. Uh, but I think, I think Seth, the Seth project was inhabiting Yukteswar and, and skillful means for that time and place. Mm. Okay. Though if, if Yukteswar had read the Seth books, he might have been appalled. I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, so Babaji, Yukteswar, uh, Madhiji, and, and a few others. So those are your personal, those are the ones you recognize as yeah. your personal guides. Okay. Yeah. And you channel them, at least that's part of the relationship. Is that, yeah. is that is that that's what I understand? Is there any other aspect of the relationship besides that you're conscious of in your body? 
Is there any other aspect of your relationship with those guys? Well, I have a particularly intense physical connection with the modity aspect. Mm. Okay. And in physical in the sense of your body, your body manifests, um, uh, uh, energies or something that, that she, she, she hooks into my etheric body, uh, in, in a quite pronounced way, which, okay. which is, which is unusual. Okay. So that, so it's a strong, like sensation based when she's present. Yeah, you could say that. So one of the things you write about that your guides speak on and talk about is this question of non-dual awareness. And again, you, you have a what I'd call a unique framing in the modern spiritual canon because certainly in the last 20 years, non-dual teachers have been all the rage in spiritual circles and... Um, they range from the profound to the glib, but they, but there's a, an underlying current of uh, value that a non-dual awareness is the uh, the way to go. And you describe your guides as saying, "Well, not so much." <laughs> that and and it's interesting because you you have a balanced way of writing about this. You acknowledge that the project of the disciplines that non-dual uh, uh, meditators go through does in fact change the nervous system of the physical body such that one can experience a non-dual awareness 24 by 7 but you also say that your guides indicate that that's not really taking advantage of uh, what the human life is about and in a way it's it's maybe a uh, uh, analogous to going, you know, buying your ticket and going to the movie theater and spending all your time watching the projector? Well, it's more like going to the Grand Canyon and never getting out of your Winnebago. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you see it, but you don't experience it. Um, so the not doors would claim that's the only way to fully experience it. And there's a certain amount of truth to that. But, and and here's why, uh, here's one of the reasons why the eternal uh, validity of your individual self is so important. Every individual self eventually becomes, uh, directly experiences and incorporates non-dual. Now, that's different from what the non-dual masters will tell you. They, they usually tell you that that the only way or by far the best way and the most certain way of attaining non-dual awareness is in in your body while you're incarnated. Uh, uh, and they often say very scary things about what happens if, if you don't. Um, so since you're since everyone is going to be permanently non-dual anyway then why become non-dual uh 
and no longer neurologically capable of experiencing the the full tensions and contradictions, as well as the unique joys of uh, being human. There are certain tensions and contradictions which my guides assert cannot really be worked through fully from a non-dual perspective. You do not incarnate as a human being out of ignorance. You incarnate as a human being to dive into a certain kind of ignorance that allows you to experience a certain kind of drama, uh, a kind of suspension of disbelief. Hmm. You you know, that's reminded me of a characterization I ran across from a a philosopher, a Western philosopher who's focused on the uh, uh, white Hedian universe. And he describes a a God that is essentially constantly creating novelty, but the transformation that uh, he describes it's so important in life is to transform oppositions into contrasts. And, yes. and, I, and that's kind of what I hear you saying that there, there are, you know, the, the polarizations of affect or of uh, emotion of the astral polarizations that are inherent in that quality of energy can sit as polarizations, in which case there's kind of a stasis. But if they're transformed into contrast, there's something more of an integrated uh, uh, codependence. And that's the that's the work of that of that realm. And oh, I hear you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for giving me that uh, that way of articulating it. Uh, that's that's exactly uh, what I'm talking about. Um, let's see. So, uh, oh, so I, I wanted to elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, so, uh, so Alice Bailey, uh, who was all the rage when I was coming on and, and, uh, 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 wrote these, uh, books that were intentionally difficult, uh, uh, intentionally obscure. Uh, that, that, that was one of her biggest differences between her and, and Seth. But another difference, uh, somewhere in all those Alice Bailey books, I remember the so-called Tibetan, which is a really serious, silly concept that uh, Alice Bailey thought she was taking down dictation from a Tibetan master, but there's never uh, no Tibetan master ever talked like that. Uh, uh, B.F. Skinner, the behaviorist, might have talked like that, but no, no. <laughs> No Tibetan ever talked like that. But she was a great and important uh, teacher. Um, but I remember her saying that uh, the, uh, the uh, animal, uh, uh, the vegetable kingdom was further along than other kingdoms because everything was green. That they had blotted out uh, uh, 
not her word, but my word, uniqueness. And that is exactly the opposite of what I think Seth is getting at, Hmm. is that the whole purpose of incarnating is to create something new, like like your whitehead philosopher was saying, um, uh, to create novelty and uniqueness. And group consciousness, which, which will come in the Aquarian age, is not about everybody becoming the same, but everybody bringing their uniqueness into the group consciousness. And that group consciousness will be non-dual. Uh, but the, the ability to hold focus will be sufficiently developed for human beings that they will be able to be consciously non-dual and uniquely dual at the same time. We have a, a fr- friend, or had a friend since he's, he's passed on, uh, but 14 years ago, who wrote a book um, that expresses that in slightly different language. He called it enlightened duality. And, um, and that's, um, I mean, I think he's getting to, he was getting to something like what you're, what you're describing, not about the group consciousness necessarily. I don't think he ever went there, but, but, um, but the, but the point is that, is that, um, all this stuff, as you, as I understand you to be saying, um, all these, all these, all the minutia of our of our daily lives is not a waste of time. Right. That we're, that we're supposed to be actually paying attention to it. We're supposed to be deeply engaged with it. There, that's a nice way to put the, it. The, the this the success or failure of it are far less important than the engagement. Uh, I I had this girl uh, girlfriend for a moment, and she broke my heart when I was in the tenth grade. And um, I'm I'm I I. I was recently looking back on that Mm -hmm. and just seeing the utter joy of that experience of having my heart broken. Mm -hmm. Miserable as I was, it was intense. It was alive. Uh, What's his name uh, who wrote that uh, song, Being Alive, the uh, Broadway uh, uh, composer uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber? No, who died, who died fairly recently, about two or three years ago. Uh, oh, Stephen Sondheim, perhaps. Stephen Sondheim. Uh, he has this fabulous song about being alive and, and hmm. uh, hold me too tightly, da-da-da-da, being alive. It, it, it's a fabulous song. And, and hmm. it, it says exactly that. So I'll have to look it up. So uh, uh, you uh, mentioned multi personhood or the the collective consciousness, and uh, that that is a 
challenging concept to, uh, I guess, get one's individuated head around. <laughs> uh, so, but, but I, but I'm interested in in what you have to say about that, and also that that you pre you look at that as a next stage of uh, conscious evolution for humans. That that right. you you say in the book, you say none of us may be physically alive uh, in, in in this incarnation uh, for when that becomes more commonplace, but it's something that is, uh, is what we're moving towards. And so can you take, talk a little bit about what that, how, what that would be like in this world, but what is that? And what is, what is this multi-personhood? Yeah, I'm not sure I can. Uh, but I'll 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 try to allude to glimmers that I, I may have had um, uh, in the introduction to uh, recentering. Seth, I talk about my friend Will who committed suicide, um, and and seeing him about seventeen. 18 years later, I was just sitting down and meditating. And um, I saw this beautiful uh, helical violet ribbon of light that I knew was was will. I, it, it just, you know, I could taste it, feel it, hear it. Uh, th- this was will. Uh, and I I I started tr- tracking, uh, and 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 I knew that he'd reincarnated a couple of times, uh, uh, and and actually this experience is what helped me understand the description of reincarnation I shared with you earlier. Um, and I saw that that he after the, he'd taken those experiences and he'd, he'd become uh, his Atman. Uh, and um, he was still Will. He was still the Will I had known back uh, back before. But he was a will that was calm and and rich and warm and funny uh, and utterly secure, just utterly. I, I don't mean secure. We, we tend to think of secure as being able to resist uh, negative things. This, this, there was no resistance there. There was simple being in engagement and from from this center of himself as the Atman, he was engaged in a number of different simultaneous uh, adventures. Uh, and one of the adventures, it was like this team. And Will was a member of the team, and they went off and, and did things that I couldn't really track. 
but you know, each member of the team had their own individuality, and but they were they were more like an entity than a team, except that they each had their own individuality, and they went off and, and did things more. A tiny bit like uh, a Star Trek it, uh, <laughs> adventure, where all these people are on the deck doing different things, but there, but there's only one one enterprise. Um, uh, and so that's. Uh, I mean, it might be at the end of two thousand years before uh, it's like that. Uh, but, uh, uh, but that's what I imagine it, it'd be like. Well, it's, it's interesting that if I look at analogies to that, um, uh, you know, I've, I've spent a career in, uh, uh, a corporate context and corporations, uh, have this kind of, um, or, you know, it's clear that there's an entity there, uh, you know, its level of self-consciousness or awareness is probably, uh, you know, a little more, you know, at, at a animalistic, you know, or, or survival level right now. But but there's a an entity and that people are organs of that entity. And people can come and go, and people can be very important parts of that entity, but then they go and someone else fills that spot. And and, and so there's a sense of this uh, gestalt that is the uh, the group or the uh, uh, corporate representation and all the different subdivisions within that. Um, we still experience ourselves as individuals, and yet all of our actions are in service of a, a, a higher unified uh, kind of ur- urgency or urge and 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 so there there's a there's there's that sense and so that's an analogy I might use but- yes I would too the only difference is the the dividends go completely <laughs> to each member. Of the team, nobody. Yeah, nobody makes forty times what the other guy makes. You're, you're saying we don't have we don't have psychic shareholders. <laughs> <laughs> you, you may have psychic shareholders, but uh, but everyone does right. get what he or she, and then I, I suppose those that particular binary might disappear. Uh, uh, uh ev- everyone gets what uh he or she uh can have but but i think the difference in a, and a, and this is what i'm looking to clarify with you is that in a corporate environment i'm very much aware of myself as an individual and because i have some level of sensitivity i can kind of sense and turn my attention to the collective but most of my colleagues don't interact that way. You know, they, they're individuals, they have a job and stuff like that. Just like 
mass events, you know, seem to have a, uh, a higher level of consciousness that's driving it than uh, the individuals who think they're part of it. And so what I get from what you're describing with multi-personhood is that there's something more more experiential about it as well, that we're part of a collective and we can know and can partake take actively of the collective and return to our individual self. But it's, it's, there's the, that separation is a lot uh, more porous than it is in the current configurations that we have. Profoundly more porous. Uh, when I was in a yoga group, we, uh, uh, a couple of us got together and tried to sing a, a Bach chorale. Uh, and, it was just too too intense. Uh, we we couldn't do it um, uh, because uh, and so imagine that you're part of a symphony orchestra uh, and you're playing your own individual instrument as part of a section, as part of the symphony, and you not only get to hear it. Uh, as the whole symphony and not just your part, uh, where you have this emergent uh, music that's so much greater than the parts, but you get to be it. You get to be the music. Mm-hmm. That's a nice metaphor. Um, I mean, it's... Uh aspirational because I don't think we have that experience in our bodies too often, but I do think we do have it um, even, even in our ordinary lives today. It seems to me there are moments when we get to partake of things and experiences that, um, cause I'm, I'm thinking back to when I've been in a, in a you know, a, a, a musical performance which, because I don't play an instrument, was always voice. But there is something about the blending of voices when it is um, skillfully done that is de- decidedly the, the, the product is, uh, is greater than the sum of its parts. And, and, um, and I think... In a, in a way, that can be true for something as simple as sitting and reading a book. Mm-hmm. Because we are engaging with, um, with another mind that may not be as present as Stuart is sitting next to me right now, but nevertheless is, is leading my mind, if I let, if I let it happen, um, if I tune into it happening, then that's um, uh, perhaps a taste of what you're describing, uh, perhaps emerging in in human uh, in the in the future in this linear timeline or, that we are experiencing now. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and so um, to elaborate on that a little bit. Please. Um, As a psychic, I can uh, 
someone can tell me about a meal they ate, mm-hmm. and I can pretty much taste it uh, okay. in, in its particulars. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's nice. Um, but you take that, you know, to, to a, or an order of magnitude of that. Uh, and and that shared experience. So it isn't just that you're sharing the symphony as a whole, but you're sharing the experience of each musician in the audience and what he or she is contributing or what he or she is experiencing mm-hmm. as they produce that music. Well, I, I'm glad you added audience as well, because I, I am... As with a reader reading a book, um, how impressions are received um, is part of what makes a symphony or a book or um, or any other performance um, meaningful, to use the word that you appear to like very much. I do. So I, I was just remembering that in terms of popular culture, uh, uh, there's a series on Netflix, I think, called Sense8. Uh, uh, I don't know if you ever saw it, but the um, it, uh, it... The, the, emerging... setup, the, the setup is that there are these eight human lifetimes generated and born. these kids are all born all over the world at the same moment at the same moment through through some kind of psychic connection and so they're one entity so they're one entity with all the individual right um features um of someone born in Kenya and India and San Francisco and all that stuff and of course it's a because it's a Netflix series, there has to be a government agencies that are trying to snuff them out because <laughs> they do not like this new evolution that's uh, taking place. Right. But um it, it it is a it's just interesting to see that bleeding into popular culture even now. Yeah, that does sound interesting. Yeah, of course, and because it's a a, a Netflix series they have uh, there's a lot of uh, sexual interaction between these <laughs> yeah yeah of course <laughs> yeah yeah but uh, but but uh, but but you know you could make the argument one could make the argument i could make the argument that that's uh, um intended perhaps in, in part not just simply to draw viewers in but also to delineate or describe or suggest the experience of being interpenetrated by other lives, different, very different lives. Sounds like it. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So, so there's another concept in the uh, uh, book that I think is a, we've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but uh, uh, in uh, uh, the, the Seth books, the, the corpus, the, I think there's uh, uh, a book, The Nature of Mass Events or something like that. Uh, there's a discussion about how we as individuals contribute to creating a collective reality. And you make a, uh, um, 
kind of an interesting, you have a paradoxical claim, which is because of interdependence, we can't control the collective reality. I mean, we can contribute to it and we can certainly influence it, but we can't control it in the sense that you describe like your, your four-year-old self trying to uh, uh, fly <laughs> like Superman. And you also make this uh, wonderful uh, statement, which is we're fully responsible for our lives, but we don't control our lives. So maybe we could talk about that theme a little bit, because I think that's an important concept. And it actually echoes something that um, uh, I remember from early, early teachings from my own teacher about uh, I was responsible for everything, of course, but I didn't control everything. Oh, good. Yeah. Um Yeah, you create your own reality. And there are no exceptions to that. Just because you don't control your reality doesn't mean you didn't create your reality. Now, that may sound like double talk to some people, uh, but, but it, it, it isn't. Uh, and it's because what you create is a certain kind of set of values. And those uh, those values have multiple ways they can express themselves. Uh, so the, and, and reality is put together synchronistically in such a way that everyone on the planet has created their set of values in their experience of the global event. Uh, so, uh, some events are, you know, are, that are happening on the planet are palpably different for, for some people. Uh, I might be upset by a war in the Ukraine or, or a war uh, in uh, the Middle East, uh, but I'm not suffering uh, in, in that sort of way. Now, I created both of those events. Um, uh, I'll give you an example which I think is, is easier to understand. I can easily get judgmental and appalled by um, the crazy conspiracy theories that you hear. And they, a lot of them are truly, deeply crazy. Uh, uh, and it's easy for me to wonder how anyone could believe such nonsense. And just recently I was recognizing in myself for the hundredth time, unfortunately, um, that I attribute far too easily bad faith 
to people who are making mistakes. Um, and that sort of first go-to of bad faith is my matching picture to the conspiracy theorist who see bad faith everywhere. So um, so that is part of how I create conspiracy theorists. I didn't control that. It happened in this incredibly creative way that burst the bounds of my imagination. But there are no exceptions to the rule that you create your own reality. And it it is not a measure of culpability. The Dalai Lama creates the Chinese communists. The, the Dalai Lama is a world treasure. Uh, for any epoch, uh, uh, and uh, he's not culpable in the same way that the Chinese communists are, but he is just as much a creator of those events as they are. So is it to say that by virtue of the fact that we are present to these events, we are contributing something to their existence because, and so I guess like the, the, like the audience creates the symphony yeah. performance in some ways. Yes, absolutely. So, so I guess then there, there's a, a corollary to this, which is if I want to have an effect in a direction that might be, synonymous with my emotional response to a particular situation, then there's inner work to transform, as we said earlier, the oppositions I feel into contrasts such that I'm not feeding, I'm not feeding a polarization, but I'm, I'm feeding uh, an opportunity for uh, uh, integration or feeding, feeding the possibility of resolution. Yes. As long as you have, the primary nervous system that human beings have that 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 makes us believe that we live in a dual reality uh you will experience uh these contrasts very vividly uh, uh, and uh you can work through particular contrasts but you can never work through the category of contrast. Is you you will you uh, it's the eternal emptying. You 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 will continue to butt up against uh, tensions and contradictions that you can learn to experience as contrast. But that's a feature of this uh, particular uh, 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 world. Or this this particular creation. I mean, that's that's like that. That's what we're here for in that sense, right? Yeah, yeah. The, it, this worlds like this are, are are the only way you can experience these particular contrasts. And 
there are other consciousnesses uh, uh, here on on the planet, devas, for example, uh, that uh, don't experience those kinds of contrasts. Uh, that's not the game that they're in. And and humans can get out of the human incarnation game and go into the deva incarnation game and vice versa. It's my sense that there are a lot more coming from the deva to here, like that movie uh, City of Angels back around the turn of the century, mm. uh, where uh, 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 where you know these these folks who don't experience these contrasts uh, decide to climb into the human incarnational system and experience these contrasts. Mm-hmm. But then this uh, uh, this vision that you articulate uh, have articulated um, in this conversation of of a uh, co creative human. Um, entity um, uh, engaged in various uh, tasks or engagements um, is another is a way that if if I understand you correctly is a way that um, although we we are unlikely in these bodies to experience that that um, that's the way that this particular reality may be sh- may be on its way to shifting that is as you un- as you understand it yes and and yeah. and uh, there's go- not just one future for humanity mm-hmm. uh, there there are well-intentioned high beings who, who have a, a somewhat different future but the project that I understand we could call the Seth project mm-hmm. uh, has been going on for more than 2,000 years uh, is with with that goal. So do the, uh, again, as I understand the Seth material and the some of the discussion about probable existences that... Um, is it the case that both projects will be realized? Uh, but just uh, on this multidimensional earth, we find ourselves on uh, multiple streams of human futureness can be played simultaneously. Um, and we as uh, participants uh, incarnating into this human story can potentially choose which, which uh, epic we wish to partake in. Yes, uh, absolutely. I do think that one of the things that will happen over the next 2,000 years is is that we will begin to play in probabilities much more. Uh, We'll be less limited in probabilities. Now, when I first heard about probabilities uh, from Seth, uh, from Seth books and later from Seth himself, uh, I viewed it as a get out of jail card free. Uh, 
If you didn't like the probability you were in, you just skip over to a different probability. Uh, around about 2000, I, I began to understand that probabilities are not about creating an ideally pleasurable reality. By the way, I know I, pleasure is good. And the more skillful you get, the more likely you are to find pleasure that will be deeper and more authentic. Uh, but skill doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, mean that at each instant you're going to find pleasure, which is what I used to think the Seth material was all about. And I think a lot of other people do still. Um, so, uh, uh, what I began to understand about probabilities is that they are ways of exploring, uh, a 360 degree view of reality. Um, I have a, uh, probable self who is a professor of mathematics at Northwestern. Uh, I have a probable self who was a, a, a partner in an Atlanta law firm. Uh, I have a probable self who served, uh, a sentence in jail for marijuana, uh, uh, possession. Uh, so all of these add a richness that I will directly perceive at some point. And, and some of them might be very unpleasurable, uh, like that last one in jail, but they, but they're all sacred and they all add. Well, that's a, uh, we're just about at our time, and that's kind of a nice uh, way to bring the conversation uh, uh, to a close because this idea of the sacredness of all experience, the richness of all experience, adding. It, it, it pervades your book, that's yeah, for sure. It's adding to a complex uh, creativity is it, it, a really a beautiful image and it's a and it's a difficult one it's a difficult one because that material what you write about and what we find in the Seth material for me always has the ring of truth and it's beguiling to my or the ordinary conceptual apparatus and so I, I really appreciate the conversation today because it, it, I felt like we could explore some of these threads and I also feel like we could have many more conversations well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, uh, I, 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 I respect the work that, that you're doing, and it's a real pleasure to have a, a dialogue around these ideas. Well, thank you I'm so glad. much for joining us on The Mystical Yeah, Positive. we're very uh, uh, happy to have had this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. 
This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with John Friedlander, author of Recentering Seth, Teachings from a Multidimensional Entity on Living Gracefully and Skillfully in a World You Create But Do Not Control. The Seth books, channeled by the late Jane Roberts in the 1970s, galvanized a whole generation of spiritual explorers. The entity known as Seth turned familiar mystical concepts into a radically new framework and introduced a unique understanding of how we create our own reality with our conscious beliefs. After nearly five decades exploring Seth's ideas, John Friedlander has reframed the groundbreaking Seth teachings, recentering them in the awareness that all consciousness expands in all directions. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com, and join us again next Saturday.